Okay, tonight we're talking about government and authorities. We're on week 23. We've only got two more weeks left. So I'll open us in prayer, and uh, we'll jump in. God, I ask that your spirit would guide this time that we're going to talk about. Really, the word in Romans 13 is, is all authorities, not just government. But then he goes specifically and he talks about government. And so this has a lot of important bearing. This is such an important topic, and I think one that's very timely today, of course. And so I just pray that you would lead and guide this time. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're talking about government and our authorities in our life. We'll start out at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 through 6. So in the history of our country, the proper function of government has always been important to understand, and that's every bit still true today. But when you look at what some of our military chaplains are facing, some of our business owners, our employees, our licensed counselors are facing, our pastors and our parents even, then you see that we're quickly headed for more moments of decision when you have to choose between loyalty to God on one hand and loyalty to the authorities, the other authorities like government, in our life on the other hand. That's a decision that ideally we would never have to make. So when you're put in a situation where you have to make that call and decide what to do in order to make the right call that pleases God, because that's the point here, you have to understand what His Word says about authority. So we're covering three things regarding authority. Number one, there are times when I need to, always, when I need to pray. There are times when I need to obey. There are times when I need to disobey. And you say, well, wait, the last two sound like they contradict each other. We'll look at that. Okay, pray. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 6. Somebody want to read that for us? Okay. Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So, the question is, what does this passage tell me to pray for? Uh, leaders, authority. Leaders, authority. All men. Men, he says kings and all who are in authority. So the government's in view, but it's not just limited to the government. So I need to pray for those people who are in authority over me. So that, you see in verse, the middle of verse 2. So that. Quiet and peaceable life. I can live a quiet and peaceful life. With the intent that, here's the ultimate goal, not just so it's easy for me, that's not what it's about. With the intent that I can point people to my God and show an attractive dignity. So it says supplications, that would be your specific prayer life. Prayers is your general prayer life, is the Greek word for that. Intercessions is going to a superior authority. So these are all involved in my prayer life. And thanksgiving, giving of thanks. If I give thanks for them, I'm forced to look at the hope and not just their flaws. Be made for all men, and specifically the qualifier is the beginning of verse 2, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life. Now you could put a period there and stop and move on to the next passage. And it, it would mean that you're just going to pray for an easy life. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, yes, a quiet and peaceable life, but with a intent, with a 
purpose. In all godliness, that's pointing people to our God, is what that word means. It allows me to do that. And reverence, that I show an attractive dignity. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. And then he goes in to talk about how Jesus is the mediator who's a ransom for, uh, for all to be testified in due time. So the point he's making is for the gospel to go out, for the message to be broadcast. So Paul is telling us that we should pray for those people in authority over us, not just for your sake, but so that your prayer will create an environment where the gospel can go out best, or where you can best show the truth about Jesus. And so that's what this passage has. Part of the reason we're in such a mess in this country, I think a huge part of it, is that we've gone to the ballot box to vote and to social media to share our opinion more than we've gone to our knees in prayer. So, who do I pray for? Well, I don't think you can pray for every single person in authority. I don't think you can pray for everybody in the government. So you take those who you are connected to, I think God connects you to them for a reason. I don't think that's an accident. I take those I'm connected to, and I pray for them. And it's easier when I know them and there is some sort of connection there. So, for example, that would be your school superintendent have kids in school. If you have a kid in school, it would be your kid's teachers, it would be their principal, it would be our mayor, it would be our local representatives, maybe it would include our governor, our president, something like that. I'm not giving you an exhaustive list, but those I'm connected to. Your prayers are impacted by the depth of your emotions, so that's going to be tied to the people you know or are close to. You can't pray for everybody, so I think this principle helps you stay specific. Well, it's those I'm connected to. I'm certainly at least going to lift them up. Now, by the way, just a context question. Paul's telling them to pray for who? All who are in authority, right? So what's the context behind not just our passage today, but also our next passage? Who's ruling this part of the conquered, known world. There's other kingdoms around them, but who's ruling this part of the world while Paul's writing this? You know who? Nero. You know what Nero was like? Now, most of the guys that write about him write about him in a bad light because they agreed more with the Senate than with the emperor, so maybe there's that shade put on it, but still, he was horrible to Christians. He was so bad that Nero wanted night games. This was before electricity. How do you have light to play night games before you have electricity? Anybody know? You take a wild stab at it? You burn Christians. Yeah. So he would take Christians, he would dip them in oil, put them on a stake, and light them on fire so that they could see to play their games at night. So Paul is telling them to pray for a guy who will end up killing Paul on treason charges and killing Peter. So it doesn't matter if you like the person you're praying for or not. It doesn't matter. You're still called to pray for them. And if they're not saved, you're also going to pray verse 4 for them. Who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. You're going to pray that over them. How do I know that's God's will? Remember our prayer lesson? I need to pray God's list, not mine. Well, I know that's on his list because it's right there in verse 4. It's very clear. You're going to take the principles in this book and pray them over those who are over you. So, have you ever wanted to go over someone's head who wasn't cooperative to get something done? Anybody ever wanted to do that? Or thought, had the thought at least? Maybe you did it, maybe you didn't. 
That's what you're doing here. That's what the word, you see the word intercession in verse 1? Supplications, prayers, different translations might say different things, but mine says intercessions, that third word. That's what that word in verse 1 means. You're going over his head to his authority to ask him, God, what he wants you to pray. That's exactly what you're doing. And when you put it in that context, it helps. Okay, this person's not the end-all, be-all of authority. Yes, they're in a position of authority, but they're in authority over me under God. And so I'm appealing to their higher authority when I go to God in prayer, and I'm lifting that person up to him. So I think that puts it in perfect context. Either the Bible is telling you to pray in 1 Timothy 2 just to give you busy work, or the Bible is telling you to pray because your prayers really do have the power to change the situation. And you have to decide which one you believe. So which one is it? It's the second one. Right? Is, is Paul telling us to pray just to give us the stuff to do? Just so you can pass the time? No. Because it actually has the ability to do something. So, all the time, I need to be praying. Remember Nero's leading during much of this time, and so it doesn't really matter if I like Biden. It's irrelevant. I have to pray for Biden. I'm called to. Um, second principle, okay? Second section, obey. Romans 13, 1 through 7. So I pray, number one. Number two, I obey. Romans 13, 1 through 7. So, hang a left, several letters. Get to Acts, you've gone too far, take a right. Romans 13, 1 through 7. Does somebody want that one? First 1 through 7. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good. You will have praise from the same, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So what is the purpose of the government, according to Paul in Romans 13? And remember, he's talking to Romans here, Roman Empire. What's the purpose of the government? To be a terror to those who do evil. You see that? And praise those who do good. Does government always function correctly that way? No, but that's its purpose. That's its God-intended function. God wants to apply His wrath on those who do evil through the government. Look at verse 4. He is God's minister to you for good, but if you do evil, be afraid, for He does not bear the sword in vain. What would they use the sword for? Capital punishment. It's perfectly legitimate that a government have that power. For He is God's minister. Listen, here it is an avenger to wrath, it adds the word execute, that's not in the Greek, but that's the flavor of what it's saying. An avenger to wrath on him who practices evil. Do you see that? God's minister, wrath, him who practices evil. 
So what is he saying? The government is God's avenue or vehicle to apply his wrath in a real-time context. To not wait till the ultimate judgment day all the time. That's the design. That's the function. Do they do that perfectly? No. Do, do innocent people get prosecuted? Sometimes. Do guilty people not get prosecuted? Sometimes. Yes. This isn't perfect. It's not going to be perfect till Jesus reigns. But this is it. This is his general function. And he wants his wrath to flow through to restrain evil. It's clear in verse 4. That's part of the deal. Now, this is inside this country, and this is outside this country. And I'm not saying we should police the world, so to speak, but other countries should fear attacking us. They should. They shouldn't you know, go, oh, well, we can kill Americans, we can bomb this thing, we can do this, and then just no big deal. They should be afraid of that. So, please don't misunderstand the phrase, appointed by God, in verse 1. Do you see that at the end of the verse 1? Paul's not saying that God picks who's in there that we don't ever pick, and so there's nothing that you can do about it. I've seen people say that. Well, God put them in there, and they shrug their shoulders. No, no, no. There are times when God will appoint someone in the sense that he will allow Satan to put his guy in there because we didn't pray, or we weren't involved, or a Christian who was called, or someone with good ethics even, who may have been led or called or inspired, or a Christian who was called by God to lead and serve in that government role that turned it down and didn't do it, so someone else got in. Um, and so God is in power, but he typically, often he chooses not to overpower. And that's a governing principle that you see in Scripture where he leaves a lot of the responsibility on us. God is certainly capable of overpowering, but typically doesn't. Yes, he's in power, but he leaves a lot up to us. He's able to micromanage, but he, often he chooses not to. This is the best way to say that. I often wonder if it's because most Christians don't pray in this area, that God has given us the bad choices to pick from that we have by letting Satan put his guys in places of authority. Do we get the leaders we deserve? Sometimes we get the leaders we deserve, I think. Now, this word authority, I want to point out something here. Authority, sometimes singular, sometimes it's plural. In verse 1, it occurs a few times. Look at verse 3. There's a similar word. Do you see that? Rulers. Authority is not just a person. It can include a person because that's rulers. Rulers is a person. Very clearly in the Greek, it means a person in a position of authority. This is necessarily talking about a person. Authority is not necessarily a person. It can be. Rulers in verse 3 is an example of authority. Do you see that in verse 1? Not necessarily a person. Uh, it also includes, for sure in our case at least, a rule of law. And so you have the government, correct? But what does the government look like? Well, here, again, this may not apply to people in other countries. I haven't studied other countries enough to know and to speak to that. But here, this is somewhat of a uniquely American comment. Not because, oh, we're America, we're great. No, nothing to do with that. It's the, the system God allowed to be put in place here, which I think is a massive blessing. If you really understand it and compare it to the world, it is a massive blessing. That within the government, you don't just have a person calling the shots, do you? What do they swear to uphold and defend and protect? A document, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, that they are under 
that document. That's the design. That's the structure. So this word authority, it's both of these. It's not just a person. It's a document. It's a rule of law. Y'all see what I'm saying? Rulers is clearly just a person when it says that. Now, that may be a unique American and a few other countries that are structured similarly to us. Observation, application for a Christian. But you see my point? If they say against the document they swore to uphold and defend, you can't leave your home and go to work to put food on your table. And some of the state constitutions are very vague in the power they give to the the governor, which they use to their advantage. But uh, sometimes to clearly go against this to say stuff like that, it's not a legitimate order. And so if you look at Romans 13, you say, well, I have to go to work to put food on my table because you can't just keep sending me free checks forever. Uh, there's a, you run into an issue there. You'll see what I'm saying? Yes, I need to respect and pray for them, but here in this country... Now, if we had a king and the king could do whatever he wanted, then I probably, we probably wouldn't have this to fall back on. But here we do. God has blessed us immensely with this rule of law, not just uh, a person. We have a governing set of laws, a document, not just a person that can do whatever they want and think that you have to follow it because simply they signed the order with their pen. Not necessarily. Without regard to, and in many times they do this in direct opposition to the document that they say and will admit that is an authority over them. And so it's, it's crazy, but sometimes they do that. So for us, that includes a rule of law, not just a person, but there is still a general call to submit to rulers and authorities. So this is my general posture. This is my general attitude. God allowed them there. I'm going to respect them. When and where at all possible, uh, what does it say in the New Testament? Be at peace. Paul, it's in, it's in Romans, same letter. He says, as, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with everybody. Don't try to be somebody who's starting up stuff, and like the zealots who are always starting to cause problems and rebel. Don't have that attitude or heart in you. That's the wrong attitude. Y'all see what I'm saying? The distinction of what I'm saying? In general, we're called to submit and obey, and that's the general pattern. The Jews are an example of people who struggled with this, with the second section. Early on in Jesus' ministry, they wanted to make Jesus a king politically. Now, they didn't want to make Jesus a king so that they could submit to him, because we see that clearly play out. They wanted to make Jesus a king so that he could throw off the Roman authority for them, because they were sick and tired of being under Roman rule. So the Jews in Israel during Roman rule, if they had obeyed Romans 13, the principle that's in there, they might not have been completely run out of their own land. But you have a group. You remember what they're called? Simon the Zealot. You had a group called the Zealots. And other groups that had to poke the bear. That had to poke Rome. Listen, Rome didn't play games. Y'all heard of crucifixion. Do you know why they did that? They didn't put them up on hilltops either. They put them beside the road where you would travel. Everybody travels down the road. This is the highway of those days. You're traveling on a donkey or an animal or maybe on foot. What do you see? All up and down some of the roadways. People suffocating to death and bleeding out on crosses. Why did they do that? It's not just to inflict capital punishment. It's to say, when you mess with Rome, this is what happens to you. So there was this banner all over the place that you didn't, you didn't mess with them. So... Uh, one of the disciples of Jesus was Simon, who was a zealot. The Gospels identifies him as part of that group. Obviously, he comes out of that. 
if they would have listened to Romans 13, the principle that's in there, and a lot of them early on, that might not even been written yet, but you understand what I'm saying. They would have understood and submitted to this teaching that was going out. Maybe they wouldn't have had part of that problem. A great illustration of this is Masada. Have any of you ever heard of Masada? M-A-S-A-D-A. The group of Jews who were fighting against the Roman government, they didn't want to submit to them. So they eventually, they were doing skirmishes, they'd kill soldiers, they'd rob them, they'd burn some of their stuff down, and it was guerrilla tactics. And then they'd run, they'd do it in the middle of the night, and they'd run. So Rome eventually chased them up on this, it was Herod's summer palace, right off the shore of the Dead Sea. If you want to look at pictures of it today, just Google Masada. And uh, it's south of Jerusalem, south of Jericho, right off the shore of the Dead Sea. And it's beautiful down there. I mean, Herod had, it's very dry. But Herod had this summer palace, and it's cooler up there. It's really elevated, really high up. So it was this perfect place for them to hold up. So they go up there, and the Romans siege them. The Romans built a siege ramp. Some of the remains of the ramp are still there. If you go there today, if you look at pictures. They took the palace at the top, but when they entered, they found that all the people were dead already. All the men, all the families. What they did was... And when you go up there and you look at everything, they did archaeological digs. And in one of the rooms, we had this story floating around for years, but we could never confirm it one way or the other. There's a story that the men cast lots. Do you remember casting lots? They'd write their name on something and throw it in such a way where they would, like rolling the dice kind of, where they would say who's first, who's second, so important. So the guys cast lots, the leaders of this rebellion group, hold up in Masada. The Romans are sieging them. They're trying to starve them out. And there was the story that they cast lots to decide who would kill the families and the kids. And then who would kill each other, and then who would be the last guy to kill himself. So they cast lots for this, but we can never confirm it. Well, they did an archaeological dig. When you go up there, you go into the room where they found these shards of pottery with Jewish male names. Some of the names match up to the guys that were in this group. And we think that was probably legitimizing uh, this story that they did. So... They had killed their families, they killed themselves because, why? They refused to submit to Roman authority. So it didn't turn out well for them, and it accomplished absolutely nothing for Israel. So the government's role is to punish those who do evil, and our role as a church, and here's where we find a distinction. There's government, but then there's also the church. And these are two distinct things. That's important to keep in mind. Because the government's role is to punish those who do evil, but our, our role as the church is to love and reach those who do evil. And if you're a Christian who's in a position of authority in the government, you have to walk out both. That's tough. So if you're a Christian and you're a police officer, you obviously you still arrest them if they need to be arrested, but you might pray for them as well. You might witness to them on or off duty, whatever be, would be the wisest thing to do in that situation. Because you're also a Christian, but you're... When you have that badge on, when you have a soldier's uniform, you're called, and then there's nothing ungodly about that. You're called to protect your nation. You're called to fight. You're called to protect and enforce the laws. If you have a badge on, that is God's design. So, number three, should I ever disobey? So look at Acts 4, 18 through 19. So if you're in Romans, hang a left, one book, go to Acts 4, 18 and 19. Peter and John heal a man who can't walk. And they're preaching about Jesus and specifically the resurrection that we have through Jesus. 
So the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish authority at the time, now most of their capital authority, their legal authority, had been removed by the Roman government at this time, but they still had some. So the Sanhedrin arrests them, and here's what they ordered them to do. Look at Acts 4, 18 and 19. Who wants that? So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to do, rather than to God, you must judge. So Jewish authority council, they arrest them, they bring them in front, they tell them not to do this. What do Peter and John do in response to the order from the Sanhedrin? Do they obey or do they disobey? Disobey. Disobey. Why? The next question is, why do they do that? I thought God in Romans 13 says, uh, you submit to governing authority. So why do they obey? Why do they think they have the right to do that? Because it's right inside of God. What has Jesus told them already? Go, preach, share. Because they knew it was against what God said. That's why. They didn't think, oh, well, maybe. No, it was really clear. It was clear. They knew that it went against what God had already said. God is over government. Yes, we submit to government. But if the government says, hey, you rebel against this guy, God, I can't do it. Sorry. So that's one of the boundaries, obviously, of where I'm going to not obey at that point. Look at Exodus chapter 1. And by the way, they catch flack for, for this. I mean, they, it's not easy for them to disobey. And, and for us, if we're forced into that spot where we have to pick between allegiance to God and allegiance to the government, it's probably not going to be a simple... It may have physical consequences to it. They may even be severe. Uh, so, for Paul, it was treason charges, and they beheaded him. For Peter, they crucified him. Daniel was the lion's Daniel, it was the lion's den. Of course, God rescued him amazingly from that. Exodus 1, 8 through 21. I'll grab this one. It's kind of big. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So Joseph knew this certain pharaoh. This is a new pharaoh. And he said to his people, Look, the people of, chil uh, the, people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. So obviously they were multiplying like crazy. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh's supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, they eventually became slaves, obviously. In mortar and brick and in all manner of service in the field, all their service in which they made them serve was with rigor, hardness. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. So they, that strategy didn't work, so they tried a different strategy. Of whom the name of one was Shifra and the other was Pua. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, in other words, when they're giving birth, and they see them on the birth stools, if it's a son, you should kill him. But if it's a daughter, then she should live. But, what did the midwives do? The midwives feared God, did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. 
So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the, and the midwives said to Pharaoh, they make up this excuse whether they're lying or just being crafty or they're being honest. They say, well, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before we can come to Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was, because the midwives feared God, that he provided households for them. So what do the midwives do in response to Pharaoh's order? Disobey. Disobey. We clearly see that from Exodus 1. So here it's a Jewish council, right? Back in Acts. Here it's the king of the massive nation. And they say, not doing that. Now, just because something happens in a narrative, this is a narrative, a story. Just because something happens in a biblical narrative doesn't necessarily make it the right thing to do. You have to look at the context to see if God's pleased with that or God's not pleased. But this context is very clear, isn't it? So the next question why do they disobey? They knew it was against, somehow, what God has said. His nature, his character. They feared God. It specifically mentions that. What does God do as a result? Blesses them. Isn't that amazing? Wait a second. I thought God blessed obedience to governing authorities and punished disobedience. Remember Romans 13? Look at Exodus 1, 22, the very next verse, through 2, 3. And then I'm going to connect it to something in Hebrews. Exodus 1, 22 through 2, 3. So second uh, plot doesn't work. So the Pharaoh tries something new. Exodus 1, 22 through 2, 3. Does somebody want that? Okay. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. And a man of the house of Levi went and took as a wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. So what did Moses' parents do in response to Pharaoh's order? Disobey. Disobey. See it again. Clear, outright disobedience to his order. What does Hebrews 11.23 say? Take a hard right. New Testament, Hebrews 11. It mentions Moses' parents. When you read 11.23 of Hebrews, it sounds like Moses in that verse is the subject of the sentence, but he's not. His parents are the subject. Now in the next verses, Moses is the subject. Moses did this by faith. Moses did that by faith. By faith, they held the Passover. By faith, they crossed the Red Sea. By faith he left Egypt. But in verse 23, the subject of the sentence is not Moses, although it looks that way the first phrase in some translations. It's his parents. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden. Who hid him? His parents. Three months by his parents, because they saw that he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. And apparently, obviously, it, it conflicted with, with what God wanted. They did it by what? What word does it use there? By faith. Now, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the definition of faith. Faith is not something that I just cook up on my own and go, I tried really hard on it. Faith, ah, got it. You know, that's not how faith works. Some people think that's how faith works. No, no, no. Faith, and we'll talk more about this 
you'll have to come back for week 24 because we'll talk about Calvinism and Arminianism. So we'll get all about this. But faith, clearly, no matter which of those camps you're in, doesn't matter. The Bible's super clear on this one. Faith is a response to what God says or does. It's a yes response. Faith is a yes response to anything God says or does. What does that mean? That means I can't make it up on my own. It's simply a yes sir response to what God has said and done. So what does it say they did it by? They did it by faith. So they knew at some point. I don't know how they knew. I don't know what all verbal tradition handed down of the nature of God. The Ten Commandments aren't even given at this point to summarize part of the law that God wanted. So, so this is very early on, but they knew this is not God's character to do this kind of stuff. And they disobeyed. And they did it by faith. I think that's legitimizing the fact that they knew that that's what God said or that's what God wanted. He didn't want them to kill the kids. So, there's a time for disobedience, and that time is whenever obedience to the government would cause disobedience to God. That's the point whenever we are not just allowed obedience where it's required, it's demanded. If it's something that clearly goes against, it's got to be clear, again, they knew it in Acts 4, it's got to be clear. It's not something I'm like, I'm thinking, well, I'm not sure. I need to think about, pray about that some more. It's clear. Other examples of disobedience I put in your notes. Daniel 3, 1 through 30. Daniel 6, 1 through 28. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Acts 5, 12 through 42. So, I need to pray. I need to obey, and that's my general posture. But there are times, if it's clear and it's against what God says or His nature what he does and what he says, then I need to disobey. I'm required to. In Canada, the government has begun to label the teaching of Romans 1, where Paul discusses homosexuality being a sin and being outside of God's design as a hate crime. So many of the churches decided, hey, let's not make waves. Let's not cause a problem. Let's just pick other passages to teach from and stop teaching from Romans 1. And that's what some of them have decided to do. So the question for us is, are we going to let the government tell us which sections of Scripture we can read? Are we going to let the government tell us when or where or how we can meet as a church when God has clearly given us these things in His Word and instruction about them? I'm not. I hope you aren't either. Because when the distractions or the line between the government and the church become blurred, it quickly becomes very, very, very very dangerous. Let me use a classic example, and I know it's a bit extreme, but it is a great example because stuff like this happens throughout human history. We just use this one because it's fresh on our memory, but there are dozens of examples throughout human history of this. A great illustration of this is Hitler, and if you want to Google this term, night of broken glass, the German word would be Kristalla. What he did was, and who's the king behind the king inspiring him? What does scripture tell us? Ephesians 6. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but with principalities. So who's the king behind the king here? Satan was trying to wipe the Jews out. Okay, so it's not just Hitler, but Hitler's his figurehead on earth. So we had this deal called Night of Broken Glass, and it was a test case that Satan was doing. So does anybody know what this is? They go in to all the, a lot of the Jewish storefronts. Storefronts are made of glass. It's not a broken glass where that comes from. So they break the glass. 
They ransack the shops. They beat owners up. I mean, they just go to town on Jews to see what would happen from the culture, particularly from the church. There's almost no church response. There's two guys in the church, a guy named Niemöller and a guy named Bonhoeffer, that resist and speak against Hitler. But other than those two guys, there's almost no response. So Satan knows, I've got the green light. If I want to do this plan to kill all the Jews, which if I'm reading this right, prophecy would say that they're the people group that have to cry out, get saved and cry out for Jesus to return, for him to come back to earth. In my take, Satan's saying, if I can wipe them out, I can stop that from happening. It's part of the reason he's been trying to wipe them out from the beginning. What would they try with the with Moses? Hey, we chunk all the boys in the river. Jesus, Herod goes, hey, we'll, we'll kill all the boys. You see this pattern over and over and you think, why are these kings doing the same thing? No, 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 there's a king behind the king. So what does Satan know? Hey, I've got the green light on this Jewish issue. So God is absolutely ordaining what happens. He is sovereign over all of human history. I'm not saying that he's not... But sometimes it's God allowing us in his sovereignty to have really evil or bad rulers because of who we are or what we've become or our lack of involvement or our lack of prayer. So just because something is ordained by God right now doesn't mean that we can't change it in the future as he leads us to do that. It doesn't mean we should just throw up our shoulders and say, well, there's nothing we can ever do about it. That's not always true. With Kristallnacht, if the church stands up for the Jews, I don't think Hitler gets to do some of the things he did. In fact, there was one institution that Hitler said he was afraid of that we find out later after writings we've recovered uh, about him, memoirs and things like that. There's one group that Hitler's afraid of. Anybody know who, what that is? The church. Why? Because, what does Jesus say in the Gospels? The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We have to be removed before Satan gets away with some of the stuff he gets away with on earth anyway. We're the restraint, the Holy Spirit in us, not us, the Holy Spirit in us, we're the restrainer uh, of, for the Antichrist to not come onto the scene. When we're removed, he's got the ultimate green light to all of humanity. He'll say, hey, I can do whatever I want now. And so the church is the only group that Satan can't defeat. Hitler was involved in the occult. And I think there's a very obvious connection there that he's the only group he's afraid of at all is the church. When they basically do nothing in response to this, who else is there to stop them? It's crucial that you understand that the church does not get its authority from the government. And I really do think some Christians today think this. We get our authority as the church from who? Directly from Jesus Christ. And that's a crucial distinction because when Jesus tells us to do something that he's clear about, like meet together. Hebrews 10 says meet together regularly. And the government tells us not to meet, that we can't meet as if it's up to them. We must obey Christ. And that would cause us to disobey the government. So again, pray, obey, disobey. There's a time for each. You have to know God's word to know what to do and listen carefully to the direction of the Holy Spirit to know how to do it. So I've got to know what he wants if I'm going to disobey and have any confidence in that because otherwise it's going to be bad for me in God's eyes. And physically it might still be bad for me over here even if I am following God, but I better be darn sure that it's what God's leading me to do if I'm going to do that. And in Germany leading up to World War II, the church had become a state church, essentially. This line basically got removed in a lot of ways 
which is extremely dangerous. So the church, most of them, walked away from believing the scripture. Most liberal theology that questions the scripture these days comes out of Germany, by the way. They failed to see the need to disobey their government whenever their government told them to report the Jews and turn them in. Or to look the other way when Jews were killed. Or to burn all their books. Or to support the Nazi regime. They failed to see the need to disobey the government when their government told them to do some of these things. Sound familiar? And these patterns happen over and over again. They might take on different shapes, but... And do you know, by the way, what fear tactic the Nazis used to convince their people and the Hitler youth that the Jews were bad and should be removed? How did they get their own people to hate them and want to remove them so badly? Anybody know? The fear of infection. They told them that they carried diseases. And after all, you do want a disease-free life, don't you? As if that were possible in a world infected by sin. Sound familiar? So God does choose, but that choosing is not separated from who we are in Him and how we pray and how we participate in politics, which we're all called to do at some level, but some of us have a distinct calling. And by the way, there is some hope in Washington, D.C. The AFA, American Family Association, the head of that, He's in contact with a lot of the people in D.C., and a lot of them are born-again believers, and they're telling him, I'm saved, Jesus has called me to this lobby position, or this admin position, or this seat of government, or whatever. And so God still, we're not without hope, God still has his people in D.C., and they're telling this guy, they're called to do this. God clearly said, I want you to go serve here, be an influence, witness, um, stand up for biblical justice. I don't think we're without hope. So God does choose, but that choosing is not totally removed from things he calls us to. He manages, but he doesn't always decide to micromanage. What we can't do, though, is to let our church become so powerless and stale in the culture that God allows the enemy to raise up a Hitler in our country. And I think we've left, in a lot of ways, what 1 Timothy tells us to do, and we've not prayed. And I think it has cost us, and I think it will continue to cost us if we don't change that. So, to wrap up, at the end of your notes, I want you to ask God to show you specifically who you need to be praying for and what you need to be praying for them and to be specific in that as possible. Either the Holy Spirit has the power and the willingness to show you that or He doesn't. I think that He does. We've covered that when we covered one authority, two forms of guidance. We've covered that when we've covered prayer and hearing from God. And if you have kids, I would give them part of your list that you develop to be praying for your leaders as well. Show them, hey, yes, uh, our president could be better and more qualified right now, but you know what? We're going to pray for him, and here's why. And we take him and we explain to them, age-appropriate, obviously, what's in 1 Timothy 2. We have a few things that our kids will read and write a paper on and discuss with us regarding the government so that in addition to understanding the scripture, they'll know what to pray, what to obey, and what to disobey, and how to do those things. So I even have a couple things that I'm going to make them walk through and write a paper on. We're going to talk about the structure of our government. I want to say this too. What happens in your house is more important than what happens in the White House. Does that mean what happens in the White House is insignificant? No. Don't hear me say that. I'm not saying that at all. It's massively significant. Although if you read the Federalist Papers, they were very clear that the executive branch is underneath the legislative in the pecking order. They're not equal. They're not co-equal. Uh, branches. It's legislative, executive, and then judicial. But 
What happens in the White House is very important. That pales in comparison to what happens in your house. What happens in your house is far more important than what happens in the White House. And I think sometimes we just throw up our hands and we say, well, it's that way, we can't change it, God wanted it, in this fatalistic type of sense. And I think that's the wrong way to understand God's sovereignty and God's rule. And so we don't do anything about it. What, what do you do when you throw up your hands? Are you going to pray? No, you're not going to pray. So we have to do these things. And why is 1 Timothy 2 in the Scripture? Why do you think God put this passage in there for us? Because we have a responsibility to pray for those who are in authority and because our prayer actually does make a difference. It's not just busy work. Number two, you don't need to put your trust in politics. You need to put your trust in God while participating in and praying for politics. I think that includes voting and serving, for example, jury duty, things like that. And if you're called to, you even serve full-time in government. There are times for obedience, number three, to the authorities in your life. There are times for disobedience to the authorities in your life. And I don't think that you can know which one unless you know what God wants. Again, back to our notes. I think it was week two. One authority, two forms of guidance. That's how we figure out what God wants. There's a helpful book if you want to get started on just some ideas of what's my role in the government. It's fantastic. It's The Role of Pastors and Christians in Civil Government by David Barton. If you've heard of Wall Builders... So David Barton with Wall Builders, The Role of Pastors and Christians in Civil Government. I think it's $6 on Amazon last time I checked. I think it's $5 on Christian Book. And local bookstore might have it or certainly would be able to order it for you. By the way, how are you going to know if it's true that authority is not just a person but it's also a rule of law to our founding documents that they swear to uphold and defend when they take office? If you're going to know what those say... How are you going to know if you've never read them? So I would encourage you, if you haven't, or haven't within the last couple decades or five or ten years, go read the, it's not that long, go read the Declaration, and then go read the Constitution. I don't care what these nut jobs say, they're, they're intertwined, they're irreparably, they're inseparable. Declaration, Constitution, and then number two, go read the Federalist Papers. If you want to know the author's intent when they wrote those documents, the Federalist Papers explain from the guys that wrote it all the stuff, and they go into all that. So let's pray. God, I pray that we would walk this out well. pray that we would remember and be specific to pray for those who are in authority over us, that our general posture would be thanksgiving and obedience to the authorities that you've placed over us. But we also understand that there's times for disobedience. And that's any time they tell us to do something that's against what you want, against your nature, against what you've said. So give us the wisdom to know, give us two things, Lord. Give us the wisdom to know when disobedience is required for us as Christians. Secondly, give us the, the strength and the courage to actually follow through with it, even if the consequences are severe because you're the true king of the universe. Not the Supreme Court, not the President, uh, it's you. So help us walk this out well and consistently. And thank you for the blessings of our structure of government that we currently have here. It's very unique. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.